Welcome to the Washington Union Alliance Church Podcast, an archive of our recorded sermons. We're a Christian and Missionary Alliance Church located in Newcastle, Pennsylvania. For more information, go to wuac.org. We are in, uh, we're going to be in several different places today, but if you have a finger or you can play a placeholder there in Ephesians chapter 2, Ephesians chapter 2 is sort of in the latter half of the Bible in front of you on page 828, so it's near the end. It's one of Paul's letters. It's in the New Testament, 828, and so uh, we just want to say we at Washington Union Alliance Church, we value the teaching of the scriptures. If you don't have a home church, make sure you find one that preaches and teaches the scriptures faithfully. Make sure you find one that does in 828. Um, it's also going to be on the screen behind me, so you can put your finger there as well. So, But we are going to kind of be spending the next few weeks on what I'm calling the heart of the church, the heart of the church, the core concepts as to the nature of the church, whose it is, and the heart behind it all, what it means for us, what it means, for, what it means to be, have the nature of the church, what it means to have this part of our church, and, and the very, very core concepts of what it means to be the church, and so what it all, what it looks like. And so it's just, it's not really a secret in our culture and society. There's um, the sense of lostness. There's always been a sense of lostness, but it's a, just for our church, for the church, our church to know, understand the reason and the heart and the core of the church, to deepen our understanding of the church. And you know, even like culture sort of can feel like it's cave in on the church, but the church remains the same because the church is built on Jesus Christ. And so I'm not sure what comes to mind when you think of the church. Maybe it's one of kind of these three pictures. When you think of the church, maybe it's a place that's kind of quaint, or maybe it's a place that needs to be cleaned after, after service on Sundays, or maybe it's a place that has cool air conditioning um, that seems to be on full blast. I don't know what you think of the church when you're like, man, it's cold in here, or quaint, or cool. Maybe you have a different picture of what you think of the church to be, or what, what you think of the church as well. But at the very core and the very foundation of the church is Jesus Christ. At the very core is Jesus himself. And so during Jesus' ministry, there's a, there's a time when he is about to leave them. He is about to predict his own death, and his followers have followed him for years and have given up much to follow him. And, and given up much to follow him. They've followed him for years. They've given up some of their livelihoods, and I'm, I just want to place my feet in those shoes just for a minute. I, no doubt I'd be a bit confused, and I'd wonder what was happening and what was going on. And in this context, this, this is the context of what is happening. They're at an all-time low of discouragement. In fact, some of those followers have fallen off, and it's now just a very small band of disciples. And went from doing Jesus went from doing miracles, and now he was doing hard teachings, and the people have left. Jesus makes this very foundational statement in, 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 uh, to Peter in chapter 16. He says, I will tell you that you are Peter, and on this what? Rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not overcome this. And when Jesus says this, he's saying that he's going to build the church and not Peter. When Jesus is going to build his church, and this is going to come through the work of Jesus, his life and his death and his ascension and resurrection. And when you think of it, think of this for a second. When you think of a gate, a gate is something that kind of keeps things contained and keeps it contained. You see, death itself will not overtake the church of Jesus Christ. Death itself will not overtake. 
Nothing will stop Christ's church. It will not be held back, nor will the plans be thwarted. And if death cannot stop Jesus' church, then nothing can stop Christ's church. Amen? Amen. It's Jesus who holds the church together. And, the, and through the shifting and seemingly chaotic world, we hang on to the hope of Jesus. And it's a gift, and in the gift is the church. And we have this promise that Jesus, that this is, is Jesus' church, and that culture may come and go, things may come and go, we, and we may think like we may need the ideal circumstances. Like maybe you're thinking like maybe we need the ideal, like the, 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 the climate's got to be right, the weather's got to be 75 degrees, it has to be sunny, and everything has to be lined up perfectly for the church to continue and the church to make itself known and to make waves in our society. And we have to think maybe sometimes like we have to have all these right things, but we have the promise and the authority of Jesus that he will build his church no matter what. And no matter what. And it's pastor and author A.W. Tozer. He said this, the church's mightiest influence is felt when she is different from the world in which she lives. The church's mightiest influence is felt when she is different from the world in which she lives. We are not like the world, but we reach the world and we reach culture at, at the same in which we live. And it might feel like sometimes like the things of God or the things like the things of God are at all time or spirituality or things are sort of in our culture and society is at a low point. And but Jesus gives us the promise that nothing will stop the church of Jesus Christ because Jesus is Lord and he is in authority and it is his church. Amen. Ephesians chapter two, it says this Ephesians two, if you're there, you can go there. Chapter uh, verse 19, chapter two says this, Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his what? Household built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief what? Cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy what? Temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Notice those images of the church, cornerstone. Jesus is the cornerstone. Why is that important, you say? Why is that important? We are, why is that important? In the times of the Bible, the cornerstone was the foundation on which the whole, everything else was laid, and everything was held up by the cornerstone, and everything else was stabilized by it. So if you were in Jesus' day, if you're one of those original hearers of the Bible in Jesus' day, you heard the cornerstone, you knew that this cornerstone, you heard this, the, that the cornerstone was actually the foundation of the Jerusalem temple. And the greatest cornerstone, the part of this, stone in that day was actually 29 feet in length, the size of a railroad boxcar. So you imagine this. And by everything, everything is held together by it. Everything is held upright by that cornerstone, namely Jesus. Jesus is the foundation of the church. John Stott is an author, and he says this, by the building depends for its, its cohesion and its development on being tied securely to its cornerstone. So Christ, the cornerstone, is essential for the church's unity and growth. Unless it is constantly and securely related to Christ, the church's unity will disintegrate and its growth will either stop or run wild. So why is unity important, you say? The church is, why is unity important? You see, a church that's not fixated solely on the soul worship of God and solely fixated on the mission of God in the world lacks unity. A church not grounded in the gospel is not unified. But what does that look like? In a, in a world full of sound bites and cell phones 
and social media, political divides. What does unity look like according to Jesus and the Gospels? You see this in church, and actually this church, when Jesus says, on this rock, I will build my church. The church, that word there, is, the word there is assembly. And the word says that Jesus says to Peter is ecclesia, ecclesia. And that word actually means the called out ones. The church is the called out ones, a group of people gathered together. It's not itself the building, but the people that gather together. So if we are the called out ones as his church, it means that we have been called out and to something. Thing, and that someone is Jesus, and that someone's Jesus. We are not like other organizations in the world, but we are a part of the family of God for the purpose of worship and for the greater transformation of disciples. I firmly believe that as our cities go, the church goes. As our communities go, the churches, the churches go, the communities go, right? So as our church goes, the community, the township, the city goes as well. You see, the church is God's plan A to reach the world. We are set apart different from the world so that the world may know who Jesus is. So what does unity look like? In a uni- what, is, what would unity, as Jesus says, look like in a world of social media and sometimes just political divides? What does unity look like with folks that we don't agree with and folks that it's just sometimes just hard community that feels rather uncomfortable at times in an age of individualism and more cell phones and more television and all the things. You see, Jesus prays, prays specifically for unity for his disciples in John 17. He prays about this before he goes, before he leaves them. And he says this in John 17, my prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message that all of them may be what? One, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the what? World may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be what? One as we are one and I and them and you and me so that they may be brought to complete what? Unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. And you may be like, that's great to hear Jesus, but Jesus, you are out of touch with the 21st century. You're like, what about my family and my world that I'm living in right now? The things that I have to deal with. Oh, I'm out of touch. I'm simp- Jesus, you are out of touch. You don't know. I don't understand. He simply doesn't know the issues the church face and the culture, and he's out of step and out of touch and just doesn't seem to fit anymore. And he's lost a little bit of step with reality. You see, actually, and his disciples, there's two of them in particular that well, actually I just want to zero in on here. There's one named Simon and there's one named Matthew. And one man betrayed his family and culture to work for the corrupt, overbearing government that they despise, and his old friends counted him amongst the, the worst of the worst even. And they refused to worship with him. And his associate was a part of an anti-government movement and occasionally militant group aspired to wage war against the government and return to the glory days when when their culture and religion ruled. And these men had little in common and they should have been enemies. But not so with a community handpicked by Jesus. And the story sounds a little bit naive. It sounds a little bit unrealistic. And then in today's divisive world, everything is divided into camps. We can't imagine a scenario in which these two people could find a way to work together. But this isn't a made-up story. 
This is the true story of Matthew, the tax collector, and Simon the Zealot, two of Jesus' 12 disciples. In Matthew chapter 10, it says that Jesus called his 12 disciples to him and gave them authority to drive out impure spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. sickness. These are the names of the 12 apostles. Simon, who is called Peter, and his brother Andrew, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, Philip and Bartholomew, Matt, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. And Matthew and Simon could not have been more different in his old career. Matthew worked at a well-paying job as a tax collector for the Roman government. His Jewish peers despised. And Simon the Zealot was a Jewish nationalist who strongly upheld Jewish culture and traditions. And Matthew had worked for the government, and Simon wanted to burn it down. One person said it was like an Occupy Wall Street protester and a Tea Party patriot would have more, than, more, would have more in common than these two people. But yet, Jesus called both of them, along with all ten other underqualified disciples, and for the better part of three years, they spent every day beside each other. Together they learned at Jesus' feet, and together they huddled in a crowd, crowded fishing boat as Jesus calmed stormy seas, and together they watched Jesus cure lepers, give sight to the blind, cast out demons, and raise the dead, and together they heard Jesus teach with the life-changing power and authority, and together they saw him unjustly arrested and, and tried and beaten to a pulp and nailed to a cross, and together they witnessed him after he rose from the grave, nail-scarred hands and all. They did it together. And so while Matthew and Simon had very different paths, I imagine they learned to get along and minister together. Not because they completely agreed 100% on everything, on every matter, but because the Jesus that they had in common was more important than the things that divided them. The Jesus that they had in common, can I say that again? The Jesus that they had in common was more than the things that divided them. If God can bring together a zealot and a tax collector and have them travel together and serve together and love together, he can do the same with folks on very different sides. Can he not? A pastoral word as we're on the doorsteps of another midterm. The Jesus we serve and his mission is greater than the politics that divide us. We have a Savior greater than our divisions. We have a Savior greater than, much greater than our divisions. Looking at Ephesians 2, it says that we are joined together and rise to become a holy temple in the Lord, being built together to become a dwelling place in which God lives by His Spirit. And in 1 Peter chapter 2, we're told that the image is this. You also are like living stones, are being built together into a spiritual house to be a what? Holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. The picture here is that we are all various kinds of stones, all various kinds of stones that make up a dwelling place, not one big stone, but many pieces of stone interlocked and fortified together. And it's not that individual stones lose their character and shape, but it's only together that they achieve the structural purpose of the household of God. You see, each of us have unique gifts. None of us are gifted in everything, and we, despite our differences, become the dwelling place of God's Spirit and grow together in community. And committing to the local church is very countercultural to the way our culture conceives how it kind of can fit us. We see sometimes we ask, does its worship style and architecture and demographic fit well with my personality and my preferences? 
But what if the biblical approach is this? What if we fit ourselves into the life and the mission of the local church and adapt ourselves to the family and filling gaps where needed? Even what that means that we are the ones that have to change. We shouldn't look for a church that will change to fit us. We should look for the one that, will, that we will be changed in order to represent Jesus Christ. Amen? Ephesians 4 reminds us this. As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I what? Urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle and be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the what? Unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord and one faith and one baptism. One Lord and Father over all who is over all and through all and in all. You see, this is Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus, and this is a letter. And there's a shift that happens in this letter. It's six chapters long, and and this shift happens, six chapters in total. In chapter four, there's this shift and it says chapters 1 through 3 are about the implications of the gospel and how God has made everything right in Jesus and God in Christ has made everything new. And then chapters 4 through 6 are all about the implications of how this works itself out on the ground and how this works into the life of the Christian and the life of the believer and the life of the church. It says, make every effort. Paul says, don't avoid efforts for unity. Paul says that the people who bring unity are humble and gentle. Paul couples this with gentleness. It can be translated meekness, which can be defined as strength under control. There are big differences sometimes among us, but when the spiritual fruits of humility and patience reign, there is unity. And Christian unity and profound diversity brings great glory to God. Glenn Packiam is a pastor I respect. He writes on worship and the church. And recently he said this, so church cannot grow in unity unless it grows in maturity. And that maturing process is what Paul is getting at here. He knows it's hard sometimes. And he says that make every effort gives the force to be diligent about maintaining unity, maintain humility and gentleness. And in fact, in the ancient world, it was widely known to be humble was actually frowned upon in the ancient world. The Greeks never used it as a context of approval, but Jesus exalts true humility with himself as his very self. He is humble in heart. He humbled himself and took himself to the cross. He humbled himself You see, the more we draw closer to God, the more we will be drawn toward one another. And the higher in worship to God, the wider we become an influence toward in one another. We cannot grow in unity unless we grow in Christ-likeness. So here's some principles I'd like to kind of draw out of these passages for today. This intimacy and ownership of this. I will build my church. I will build my church. And Jesus is the ultimate source of authority. We look to Jesus as our standard. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6 that you were bought with a price. And we are not our own if we are in Jesus. We are not our own. And I will build my church, Jesus says. There is ownership. It is his church. It is not the pastor's church. It's not any one particular person. It belongs to Jesus. Amen. Amen. I will build. Amen. Are we awake? Amen. I will build my church. He is personally involved in this. We are invited to join him in that work in the world. But this is his church. 
and we join him in that work. And it's all based on the mission of Jesus. It's not based on gimmicks or tricks or the like, but on the spirit of Jesus and the mission of God in the world today. I will build my church is a present reality based on the proclamation of Jesus and the authority of the scriptures. I will build my church beginning in Lawrence County, Pennsylvania. Amen. Husbands, love your wives. This is Ephesians chapter 5. It says this, Husband, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with, the word, with water through the word and to present her himself, to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any blemish, but holy and blameless. Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. There's a commitment from God to the church. I will build my church. There is a covenant here that God's not going to give up on his church. He's not going to give up on it. We are God's plan A. He's not going to scrap it and rewrite something different. The church is his plan A. I will build my church, and there's a covenant here to fulfill exactly what God wants to accomplish in the world. And we get to join him and to participate in that mission in the world. In multiple places in the Bible, it's Christ who is the head of the church. We see that in multiple places. And so we see authority that we as the church submit to the lordship of Jesus. We submit to his leading and we submit to his doing. We submit to all of it. And those disciples, those first disciples were led by someone and we are led by Jesus. We submit to the authority of the scriptures. It's, it also makes its way down into our individual lives as well in the church. The questions we might ask is, are we submitting to the way of Jesus and his word and his way? Is there a place in our lives that we haven't fully submitted to his word and way? As a, as a submit, we submit to the authority of the scriptures and the authority of his word, and we align our purposes with God's purposes in our world. And we submit our worldview and prayerfully and humbling using the minds he's given us, not to bring our own agenda to the Bible, but what God wants us to see in this, in this book. Why? Because you and I were bought with a price. We were once alienated from God completely, completely cut off from God, and God made it right by placing Jesus as a substitute for sin, which alienates us from God, completely cuts us off. We were once dead in our transgressions and sins, and we placed Jesus as the author and perfecter of our faith. You see, achieving unity means seeing our brothers and sisters in Christ as God would see them. Achieving humility means that we stand on mission together as a family. And it means exercising humility when sometimes we want to get our own way, but it means serving and seeing one another as beloved sons and daughters of the King, even though we may not see eye to eye all the time. But we can stand shoulder to shoulder together and achieve the purpose of unity and stand shoulder to shoulder in what God and the mission of God to the world. So just this thought here is to let's be a church known for our worship of God, unity in the body, and mission to reach our community. When Jesus says, by this, that the world will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. By this, the world will know that you are my disciples if you one, love one another. In that context, it's John chapter 13, and he's saying this to his disciples. And he's saying this to his disciples before he's about to die. And he's saying this to them, and he says like, by this, the world's going to know if you love one another. And I'm sure that after three years, you know, if you know somebody for three years, you know a lot about them. And these guys were together all the time. And they knew each other's quirks, and they knew each other's what really made them tick, and they knew what really made them upset. 
Okay, so we kind of know this. If you know somebody for three years in a very close setting, you probably know exactly what kind of what annoys them as well and what really grinds their gears, so to speak, as my wife says, grinds your gears. Um, so in this John chapter 13, they spent three years together. And it's at the end of his ministry. And they probably looked at each other. They were like, I can't possibly love that other. Can't, are you kidding me? Like, I'm kind of tired of loving these people that I've spent three years with. And they're probably all looking at each other like, that guy? You mean you want me to love me that guy? You mean the world's going to know that I, by loving that person who, really? Do you think about this? Like, <laughs> I mean, come on, like this, all of this? And Jesus is like, yeah, that's how the world's going to know. Yeah, if you love each other, if you love one another. And he knew it would be hard. And to be the kind of people that love God deeply, love what God says deeply, and then love each other well. And when people gather and deeply love Jesus, love their neighbor, walk in purity and unity, and reach the lost, I believe the church is glorified. And disciples are made, and the lost is found. When people gather and deeply love and worship of God and worship God first and foremost, God, you would be worshiped, that God, your name would be glorified, not our own name, but your name would be glorified and your glory, God, would be known in my heart and my life as an individual disciple. God, I pray that your kingdom would come. And I believe that the church is glorified, disciples are made and the lost is found. Why? Because the lost need to be found. The world is hurting and the message continues. I will build my church, beginning with our neighbor. And he'll do it through you and me. He will do it through you and me. And Lord, may he build Washington Union Alliance Church by our worship and love for Jesus and love for our neighbor. Amen? Amen. As we take communion together, you'll grab those elements in front of you.